0: Acts chapter 1, here we go, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, glad that you're here today to start this journey with us, it's like like coming up on a a new city and you're right outside the gates and you're looking at this place you haven't been to or you haven't been in a while and you haven't explored and getting ready to dive in, so I hope you're excited about it as I am. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8 is the recurring message of Acts. It is the central theme of Acts. It is the single most important verse in the whole entire book of Acts. No less than 39 times is the word witness used. This is who we are. This is what God has called us to be. Verse 9. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing in heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And here begins the second part of the story of the work of Jesus. You remember at the beginning of his letter, authored by Luke, Luke said, I'm now continuing. This is a sequel. He said to Theophilus, he says, The first book that I wrote, my gospel, the gospel of Acts, The longest book in the New Testament by words. He said that this gospel is the beginning of the story of Jesus. This is the sequel. This is a continuation of the work of Jesus. We would would wrongly view the beginning of Acts or the book of Acts as a different story altogether. Gospels, Jesus, Acts, Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Christ carrying on the work of Christ in the world. So this is the second part, the sequel. And consider this overlap. Consider how these two tie together. This is the conclusion of Luke's gospel. This is Luke 24, starting in verse 44. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it's written, that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple, blessing God. So here's the scene. At the beginning of the book of Acts, we see this overlap, this continuation of the story of Jesus' final words to his disciples, and not just the original twelve. When I say disciples, I'm talking about all the band of believers that were there, that were gathered around him. And it's interesting that disciples asked him a question and they said to Jesus, Is now the time? I mean, is now the time that you're ushering in the kingdom? And you know, the question really makes perfect sense if you think about it. I mean, Jesus had done just done the most amazing thing in their eyes. He had fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about his death, about his crucifixion, but he had been raised. This is the physical person of Jesus standing in front of them. Luke gives us a detail that the other writers don't. 40 days Jesus meandered about appearing to disciples and followers for 40 different days through many proofs Jesus showed that he is in fact the Messiah he is the son of God he is the king that was proclaimed and so now their question makes perfect sense you have conquered sin you have destroyed the power of death you stand here alive surely the kingdom begins now Surely you're going to establish your rule in Jerusalem now. You're going to take the throne. You're going to call all nations to judgment. Everyone is going to submit to you and surrender at your feet. Surely it's now. But they've forgotten what Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Luke. This good news is going to be proclaimed to all the nations. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times. That's a good message for us today. We should not be preoccupied... We should not perseverate with predictions about the end of times, about the return of Christ. That's a certainty, but it shouldn't occupy our thinking, and it surely should not occupy our activity. Instead, we should be occupied about the business, about the mission, about the opportunity in front of us. Because he said, until this gospel is proclaimed to all the nations, the end won't come. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. There are three essential gospel themes that we see in Luke's gospel and we see reiterated at the beginning of Acts and throughout Acts. And so I want to lay down some foundational theology as a reminder. If this is new to you, then this is, this is the crux of Christianity. This is the core message of Christianity. Three gospel foundations, three gospel themes. The first is physical resurrection. Physical resurrection. Jesus is the victorious king over sin and death. The gospel ends with that, with that statement, with that theme. Acts begins with it. You have seen me raised, you have seen me ascended to the Father, Jesus victorious. And the resurrection of Jesus, by the way, is the central theme of every sermon in the book of Acts. Now, depending on how you count those sermons, those by Philip and those by Peter and those by Paul, depending on how you number them, they're anywhere between 10 and, or we can say as many as 19, but every one of those sermons has as its key point its central tenet jesus christ crucified and raised he is god he has displayed it he's demonstrated it he is the conquering king who came into this world to establish a kingdom what kingdom did he destroy to establish his own what kingdom did he conquer the kingdom of death the kingdom of sin that brings on death the kingdom of darkness that he destroyed to bring about the kingdom of light he's a conquering king he was died he was buried He was raised. He lives. Resurrection. Second theme is public ascension. Jesus' ascension to the Father was not hidden. It was not something they just speculated on. It's not a conclusion that they drew just from inference. Well, he's not here anymore. He must have gone back to the Father. Critical to the gospel story. Critical to the confident assurance Critical to the bold witness of the early church was the fact they saw Jesus go up into heaven. And they heard the message from those two angelic messengers, those two men, euphemistically stated, men clothed in white, who said, as you saw him ascend, so shall you see him return. This physical ascension is is critical to the message that Jesus is the reigning king now at the right hand of the Father. Where did he go? What does the Bible say that he did? He went to the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is now reigning. And consider how this is the the continuation of so many other biblical themes, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the, the statement of so many other teachings of Scripture. This is Jesus, the completed sacrifice, the interceding high priest that's in the book of Hebrews. This is As John depicted Jesus, the glorification of the Son of Man, He now is glorified. The vindication of God in the Gospel of John. This is Paul's depiction of Jesus, the ultimate lordship of Christ. As we might rightly say, the the cosmic lordship of Christ over all, that all the world is at His feet, as depicted by Paul in his writings. This is the great triumph that David wrote about. In the 110th Psalm, this is Jesus, Jesus now on display, not suffering servant, not Joseph's son, the carpenter, not that one which was murdered, but that one which is raised in power and now ascended to the Father, the ascension. And third, the third element critical to the gospel message, critical to the good news that they proclaim, that we proclaim, is this. It is, the, it is a sure and certain return of Christ, that his return is promised. Jesus is the coming king. What's he going to do when he returns? He's going to judge the nations. Everyone will submit to him. Everyone will be under his authority, and he will rule over all. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus ascended to the Father. Jesus is coming again, and this royal proclamation of Jesus is king, and I, I want to I want to emphasize that so much over, this, over these next several weeks. The message of the gospel, foundationally, is about the kingdom of God coming in Christ. Jesus came to usher in a new kingdom, and he's the king. And this royal proclamation includes judgment, justice, and the call to repent. It includes the message, and, and keep this in mind as you think through this on practical terms, when you're talking to someone about God. And you're trying to share with them what we call the gospel, the good news of God. You're proclaiming in the gospel, the good news is that there is a kingdom. Jesus is the king, and this is the means by which you can enter that kingdom. But the message of that kingdom has to include this. The king is coming back one day, and he's coming back in judgment. There will be perfect justice on that day, and the only way to avert condemnation is to repent. Consider some of these passages that we'll look at in the weeks to come. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 19, following. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Heaven is holding back Jesus until the right time is fulfilled. So what ought you to do? You ought to repent because the king is coming back. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're hearing what I'm saying, one of the many reasons, but at the top of your list of reasons, to trust in what I'm saying and to do something with it, is that King Jesus, as the Scriptures have declared, is coming back. And on that day when He comes back, you want to be on the side of repentance, not on the side of rejection or refusal or rebellion. I want to be on the side of repentance. I have believed, I have trusted. Repent. Consider Acts 10.42. He commanded us, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. You know, it's not very popular today, honestly, whether it's in pulpits or it's in private conversations, to give a gospel message of repentance. We want to talk about the benefits. We want to talk about the pleasures. We want to talk about the gifts that Jesus is a good gift giver Gives us. We want to talk about how much better we are, how much this works for us, how much we've enjoyed it, all those things, those personal experiences and those fleeting emotions. We need to talk about this reality. One day, all the nations think about this for a moment your sons and daughters, your friends and neighbors, people you haven't met yet, all of them will see him and he will call the nations to repentance. We ought to be saying that. We ought to be telling people, if the times that you live in make you anxious, if you feel like the world around you is changing rapidly, if you're concerned about what the future ought or might bring, what you ought to be thinking about is this. There is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and one day he's coming back for that which is his. Repent. Believe in him. Enter the kingdom. Acts 17.31 tells us he has fixed a day. Think about that for a moment. Sovereignty. The absolute control of God over all things, from every detail, every molecule, to the biggest of events, he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, that's Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know that there's a day fixed on the divine calendar for the return of Christ and the judgment of the world? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. He's not in a tomb. I think about that sometimes when we do what we did today, when we share communion or the Lord's Supper. And if you grew up in church, you've been doing this for a long time, like I have. And I'm afraid sometimes, and I I think our motivations are right. I mean, I, I think our intention is good. And we want this somber experience of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, do this to remember me. But Jesus also said, do this until I, till I return. Part of our receiving of the Lord's Supper is not just a grim reminder that Jesus was crucified in a horrific way for our, for our sins. It's not just a call to look on the cross, the cross of Christ and, and mourn for he who suffered for us or to mourn for our sins that put him there. It's a triumphant declaration that he who died is raised and is coming again. Do this to remember me, but do this until I come. One day we'll celebrate with him in glory. And that bread and that cup that you received today is a reminder of that. Do this. He's fixed today. So the promised return of Christ. And now, what age are we in? We're in this indeterminate age, known by God, not known by us, told to the apostles, it's not for you to concern yourself about the days and dates, but you live now in a church age, a Holy Spirit empowered, God-intended, word-driven church age. A powerful church now is being established to complete the mission. What Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. To all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, going out from here in concentric circles of gospel witness and influence. We are in that age now. It began in Acts. It's been emanating from there since. We are in this church age now until God determines that the time of that mission is over. To the witness and mission of the church is done. This is the age that we are in. What is the mission? What's the church for? What makes a gathering of people a church? What is the single, non-negotiable, absolute essential Irreducible minimum of a church, and how will that irreducible minimum, absolute essential, non-negotiable mission be accomplished? They're all answered in Jesus' last words. Both those questions are addressed in Acts chapter one, verse eight. Verse, he said, "It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed." You remember, chapter seventeen, verse thirty-one. He's fixed a day. It's not for you to know what that day is, but. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How will this mission be carried out? Through the church, through a family of believers, those who are called by God to be his sons and daughters, a family of people who will be everyday missionaries, who will make disciples. That's the mission of God's church from the beginning. It's the mission of God's church today. It'll be the mission of God's church till Jesus returns not professional apostles, not professional missionaries or ministers, though those all have a, have a role to play, but it's everyday missionaries. It's people, people living as God's people in the ebb and flow of their life, in the communities in which God has planted them, in the places to which God sends them, and in the places that persecution takes them. As they go, as you go, you take Jesus with you. And you live out the truth that you know. You express it in your life and you do it with zeal and enthusiasm and you make Jesus known. Everyday missionaries making disciples. What does this passage say about that mission? Here's some things you need to know foundationally as we move forward in the book of Acts. He said this mission is authorized. That doesn't mean it's approved, by the way. When Jesus says all authority on heaven and earth is given to me, He's saying you act as my representatives. You act with my authority. You speak with the authority of heaven. When you speak rightly of Jesus, when you speak the truth of Christ, when you declare the essentials of the gospel, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? What does Jesus ask you to do? No, no, no. Command you to do in response. You're speaking with the authority of heaven. You're not speaking from your own authority. You're not speaking with the authority of the church. You're not speaking from opinion or religious philosophy or human ideals. You're speaking with the authority of heaven. This mission is authorized. Four times in verses 10 through 11, the word heaven is mentioned. you notice that? Four different times, this idea that Jesus is in heaven. I can remember a, an older member of the church I pastored before. and I remember him sharing with me his sort of overarching, I guess, philosophy of the Christian life. And it was off. I mean, it was off in so many ways. And we had so many conversations where I tried to address this. But he really had this idea of this sort of hands-off, disconnected. Really, he wouldn't express it this way because I don't think he'd ever considered it. But he very much was like a modern deist. You know, God sort of set things in motion. And God was active at the beginning, and he'll be active in some way at the end. But right now, he's sort of disconnected. He's the departed God. And he would say it something like this. We know, I believe that we get saved. And then God says, you know, you do the best with what I've given you. You do the best with what you have. And then one day I'm going to come back and I'll see how you've done. Now, that's his misinterpretation of Jesus' parables about stewardship, etc. But it's not a right picture of the gospel. It's not a right picture of the age in which we live. When the scriptures mention Jesus going up into heaven, the theme there is not his absence. Uh-oh, he's gone. How are we going to do this now? It's just us. It's on us now. We better get real creative here. We better come up with some things that will really hit the context. We better really figure out how we're going to speak to our culture. We better figure out how we can be very winsome and persuasive because it's all on us. That's the modern philosophy that drives so much of the church. Pragmatism, self-reliance, human effort, manipulation, emotional, please, etc. He said, no, no, no. I'm going up into heaven. This isn't about my absence. This is about my authority. Where am I going? I'm not going on hiatus. I'm not going on sabbatical. I'm going to assume my rightful spot in authority. I will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. I've got control here. This is what he's telling the church. This is a message of encouragement. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And you're going to do greater things. But don't think that my absence is about disconnection. It's about empowerment. It's about authority. Jesus is in heaven today, reigning there. He's reigning. The earth is His footstool. It looks out of control to us, but He's still in authority. It looks like it's spinning in ways we couldn't have imagined or going in a direction that seems hopeless. We despair sometimes. We get frustrated sometimes. We get anxious. We get fearful. We become full of doubt. We cower. But Jesus sits on the throne. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Consider Acts chapter two, verses thirty three through thirty six. I'll talk about this a little more detail in a couple of weeks, but listen to what he said. Being therefore exalted, the ascension of the of the Son is to exalt him, to show you that he's exactly who he said he was. Jesus, preexistent with the Father, has now ascended back to his rightful place at his side. Being exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You're not on the losing side. It feels that way sometimes. It feels like your voice is being shut out. It feels like if you speak up, you'll get canceled. It feels like opportunities are dwindling, and control and authority is increasing. It it, it feels like we're on the losing end of this, but the assurance to the early church is the same assurance of ours. that Jesus who ascended is the king, and he's an authority. He's ruling and reigning. He's got the world At his feet, our enemies are at his footstool. The mission is authorized. The mission is empowered, he said. This is also hugely important for us as we think about our call to be everyday missionaries. Everything we talked about over the last five weeks. What is it to be an everyday missionary? What does it mean to be people who live their lives as ambassadors of God? It means that we live with the power of God behind us. There's a power to the words that you share. There's a power to the prayers that you pray. There's a, there's a power to what we do as God's people. When you're trying to have that conversation with someone and you're feeling like, I don't know what to say, I don't know how I'm going to answer all their objections, um, I, I don't know how I'm going to break through, man, this is going to be embarrassing, um, Maybe they're not, maybe they're not going to respond well, maybe they're going to push me away. There's a power behind that. There's a power behind the truth of the gospel. There's a work of God that you can't always see. That is present for us. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, sends the Spirit. This is the enabling presence of God with us. We would have every reason to feel hopeless and in despair if we did not have that. And if it all fell on us, because I'm not the most creative guy in the world. If it all fell on our team, we're not the most creative staff in the world. We're not trying to figure out brand new ways to do new things. We're trying to figure out how to be faithful to what the Scriptures say and what the church has done for 2,000 years. We don't want to be more like the church of the 21st century. We want to be like the church of the first. And we want to have that same sort of power, the enabling presence of God to work through the teaching of the Word, to work through the administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism, to work through the fellowship and the relationships of people to work through our prayers, to respond mildly to us. The mission is empowered. Acts 1 also reminds us that this mission is global. This mission is global. I take great pride and hope in the right sort of way to be part of a church that considers their role to be global, that looks beyond ourselves and looks beyond our own neighborhoods and needs. Though they're prevalent, there are needs all around us. And one doesn't cancel out the other. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say, well, there are plenty of lost people in Dothan too, sure. Probably some in your family too. Probably some right across the street from you too. That doesn't discount our need to go to places that have never heard the name of Jesus or have heard it so infrequently that they don't understand it. Or have heard the name but heard it wrongly. You know, it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria where those people worship wrong. And don't like us, and we don't like them, and we got to cross cultural barriers and religious barriers and socioeconomic barriers and language barriers, and then all the way to the ends of the earth, where we don't know what we'll discover there. This mission is global, no exceptions, no exclusions. It'll go everywhere. But here's the best part. The mission is guaranteed. I mean, imagine this for a moment. Imagine the, the history of the moment. There's triumph here. They've seen Jesus go up to the Father. There's vindication here. Imagine the sadness at the day of crucifixion. Imagine the sense of withering loss. Personal and emotional. Professional. We staked our lives on this and we're seeing it crumble before our very eyes. Everything we believed in, done, gone. But three days later, they see Jesus for 40 days Jesus is with them and this is not the idea of Jesus with them this is not the spirit of Jesus with them this is not Jesus floating amongst them this is Jesus eating with them and talking with them this is Jesus amongst them and the feeling of triumph and soon very soon he's going to do exactly what he promised he would do in fact, he's going to do exactly what the Old Testament prophets promised that God would do. He's going to pour out his spirit. And something amazing is going to happen. And you're going to see it. You're going to see little case studies of it, little exemplars of it in people like Peter. Peter, who had cowered in the darkness, weeping, sobbing, sniffling, that he doesn't know Jesus. I don't know him. That's not me. Bringing curses on himself. Till Peter will stand on the steps of the temple itself, declaring to anyone who will listen, and anyone who had passed through these gates, this same Jesus that you crucified, he's Savior and Lord. Stephen would do the same. And Paul would do the same. And myriads of others whose names we don't know would do the same. What happened? The Spirit of God came. But the persecution, man, It doesn't take very long in the book of Acts till we see the heavy hand of Satan carried out through the hands of sinful men to suppress the work of the gospel, to suppress the work of the Spirit, to suppress the mission of God. And we see it in the heaviest sort of ways. We know it in the book of Acts. We know it in history. They did what they did in the hardest of times, in the worst of circumstances. The Holy Spirit was with them Truth was behind them. What motivated them? This guarantee. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. You saw me go up, you'll see me return. This guarantee, there's a guarantee to the mission. There are about 120 believers counted in Acts chapter one. By the time you get to chapter 21, there are thousands. Some translations use the word I just used: myriads. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands by the end of this book God was is and will ever be sovereign over his mission that's the good news he will be sovereign over his mission the purposes of God will not be thwarted he will do what he said he will do how will he do it Through the obedient and faithful response of his people who revere him as king and who declare his kingdom but he will do what he said, the reigning Lord is going to continue to add to his church. That's our confident assurance today. You know, um, as a pastor, I meet with other pastors sometimes, and some of these things I do in social media groups, and some of these things I do face to face. And there are articles I read and blogs that I get that are common to lots of, lots of pastors. You know, we're in our own little weird world sometimes, it feels like. And we're all commiserating right now. Really, we're all commiserating. Lots of pastors commiserating. The number of pastors considering quitting. Um, is much higher than you would think if statistics are to be believed, if these conversations are to be believed, if these anecdotal evidences are to be believed. Percentages of those who would if they could seems off the charts. And we're frustrated by things like COVID, politics, fractious division among the you know culture, whether it's political or relational or whatever it may be. You know All these different things. Have we lost sight of the promise of God? Jesus himself said, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You, you'll be able to open up the doors. You'll be able to open the gates of the kingdom of God for people. I'm going to give those to you. And hell cannot prevail against it. It will not prevail. You will not lose Some of you may lose your life in the process. Some of you may suffer for the cause, but we will not lose, we will prevail. And those of you who do suffer, those of you who do face martyrdom even, look at the glories to be given you. The Apostle Paul, who suffered perhaps the most of all the first century apostles, said very clearly this, he says, this momentary suffering cannot compare to the weight of glory that will be revealed to me when he comes. This mission is guaranteed. So what's the therefore? I love the way these angelic messengers get right to the point. I wonder sometimes, so this is my speculation. This is not anything certain, just me pondering it. I wonder sometimes the angels, knowing what they know, about God, about Jesus, knowing what they know about heaven and God's presence, knowing what they know about his goodness and his power and his authority, knowing what they know about history, knowing what they know about human behavior as they have observed it, sometimes look at us and say, you got to be kidding me. You guys are so slow. You guys are so, you guys are so dense. And I can just picture this. Here are these followers of Christ looking up into heaven, dumbstruck, and maybe there's this lingering thought like, uh-oh, what do we do now? And he says to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Makes me wonder how long they stood there. I guess he's gone, guys. The clouds have closed. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. Don't just stand there. Don't just stand there. He's coming back. Get to it. Get to the mission. Get on with it now. You're going to receive power. Just wait a little longer. Stay right here in Jerusalem because something's going to happen that's just going to blow your mind. Something's going to happen that's going to totally change the equation. Something's going to happen that's going to empower you to do all these things that have been said, and then you're just going to go. You've got to go. Remember Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. I think somehow... Through the centuries of church, we've over-separated the professional ministry and the lay ministry. You know, there's clergy and, and laity, and somehow, both consciously and subconsciously, we have relegated the work of gospel ministry of witness to clergy, whether that's pastor, elder, or missionary, somebody in that family, and we've lost the sense of the everydayness of it, of the laity. And certainly there are certain things, there are specific responsibilities that were given to the apostles. We'll talk about apostleship as we get through the book of Acts. I believe the apostles were a specific group of people that existed in a specific time and place with a specific purpose. I think you should wave many red flags when you see someone declaring themselves today to be an apostle. Those apostles were specific men who were with Christ, and the words that the Spirit of Christ gave them make up most of our New Testament. And there were specific things that were their responsibility, but the idea of witness, you'll be my witnesses, that's the responsibility of everyone who's encountered Christ. You'll be my witnesses. Witnesses of what? What have you seen? What do you know? What have you experienced? What has changed you? What do you love? What stirs you? Classical rhetoric teaches three forms of persuasion. Aristotle called these the artistic proofs. We see these so clearly again and again in the witnesses in the book of Acts. We see these elements in their life Again and again and again. And we see this this theme, this pattern, as it were, appearing in their sermons and in their conversations and how they led people. Three modes. Logos. Logos. The truth. What we know. What we believe. What we've ascertained. What are the facts? For us, the logos of God is not just a written word. Jesus says that he is the word. He's the Word. He's the living Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have the living Word of God. In the book of Hebrews, we saw that in former times, God revealed Himself through the prophets, but in the last days, He's revealed Himself through His Son, the living Word. The words that He's given. Truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. We're the truths that we know, that we have believed, the facts, the facts. One of the foundational reasons to be a Christian is because it's true. You know, I, I get frustrated sometimes when I see those statements and people trying to persuade someone. Well, you know, this really works for me. It doesn't really matter if it works for you, whatever that means. Is it true? Are these things true? There is an, There is an absoluteness to truth, a truth that you have to stand up for one day and that you will have to stand for one day. Is it true that Jesus is preexistent with the Father? Is it true that Jesus took on human flesh, born of a virgin? Is it true that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, but he didn't sin? Is it true that Jesus went to the cross sinless for our sins? Is it true that Jesus was buried and three days later he rose according to the scriptures? Is it true that Jesus appeared to many for 40 days and that he ascended into heaven? Is it true that Jesus is coming back? That's logos, the truth. The second word is ethos. Ethos. Ethos speaks to character and person. Impact, effect. You see, as Christians, we're not just people who profess a certain set of statements, propositional statements to be true. We're not just people who can pass a pop quiz on God. We're people who've been transformed by Christ. We are not all that we ought to be, but we surely are not who we used to be. You can look at our lives and see that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us, or else you ought to. There ought to be something about us. There ought to be something that's changed us, something that has changed how we handle stress and difficulty, pain and suffering, death even. Something different about what we celebrate and why we celebrate it. Something different about how we live as parents or as spouses or as business people or whatever it may be, something that has transformed us. There ought to be a certain ethos to us. This is who we are. In a book I've come to value more now since his death, a book called The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard calls out much of contemporary Christianity for being what he calls barcode religion. Barcode religion. He says it's like this, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you're in the produce department, you take the little sticker off the apple and you put it on a banana. When you go through the checkout, they're going to scan it. And what's the checkout going to say? It's going to say apple. Apple. It's clearly not an apple, but the sticker's on the banana. And so it checks out as an apple. And, it's, and Willard uses this analogy to say this is the way many of us approach our Christianity. It's like barcode faith. We think as long as we've said the right things, if we pray and ask Jesus into our heart, or even if we believe the right things to be true, we have the barcode on us now. And that's all that there is to it, that one day we'll stand before God one day and we'll be in that great checkout line in the sky and he'll scan us, check, check, check. It doesn't matter if we look like bananas, we're all going to check out as oranges but that's not real Christianity. And the teachings of Scripture don't support that. They don't don't allow that. We have to evaluate ourselves. Is there something about us that has been transformed? That's ethos. There's a third part, and this is what drives us. This is the emotion of it all. This is the part that stirs us up. This is the part that marks somebody like the Apostle Paul. Though he's imprisoned, he says, I'm imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. This is the sort of thing that marks Peter and John. We cannot but tell what he's done for us, even though we've been threatened with our very heads. This is the sort of thing that would cause Stephen to keep preaching, even as the rocks begin to fly that would take his life. Pathos. What am I passionate about? And we see again and again the early church, those witnesses had all three. They knew the truth and they proclaimed it in every sermon. You see them proclaiming the gospel. This Jesus, this is what happened, this is what he did. That's just true. What, what are you gonna do in the face of truth? This is not just an emotional argument. This is not just how it makes me feel. This is not just one option of many. These are the facts, what God has done for the world through Christ. But they didn't just know it. They lived it. They were it. They could stand up before people and say, we have been transformed by this. We were the blind who now see. We were the lame who now walk. We were the hungry who are now satisfied. We were the lost who are now found. And they had passion. The Holy Spirit stirring them. Their brothers encouraging them and holding them up and praying for them. The, the, the body of Christ cumulatively locking arms together as one man for the gospel. And they were passionate. They had logos, truth. Had ethos, transformation. And they had pathos, passion. And that's a witness. And that's who we are. I'm going to ask you if you bow your heads with me this morning. Father, do something in us supernatural, I pray. Father, I suspect there are some who need to be challenged with the truth. They need to be challenged at the point of their intellect. Like great thinkers of the past, even those who approach you as skeptics or cynics, Father, confront them with the truth. Show them the truth in Christ, the truth revealed in your word. The truth that goes beyond the general revelation available to us all, that sky and sun and stars and moon and sea and shore declare. Go deeper. Show us the specific truth of Christ, the revelation of God in Christ and in your word. Father, I suspect there are some, perhaps among us, some who will listen to this message, who probably would get the basics right. If salvation were just a pop quiz, if it were just a matter of knowing the right things. Simultaneously, though, Father, we're not ignorant of the fact that the devils, the demons, also know these same facts and tremble at them. Yet they're not transformed. They have not surrendered to the king. They oppose him. They reject him. They live under their own rule in adamant Eternal opposition to him. Father, may that not be us. May there be some in this room today who say, Father, change my heart. I know these things. I surrender to you as king. Rule my life. Lovingly guide me. Protect me. Provide for me. Rule over me. I want to celebrate your rule forever and ever. I want to rule with you, as your word says, in the new heavens and new earth. Father, I want to join the kingdom of your dear son, Jesus. Change me. And Father, I suspect there are a lot of Christians in this room who are lacking in various degrees passion. We've grown cool or indifferent. We've grown fearful or timid. We've become casual. Father, stir up in us. Revisit us with your Spirit. Revisit us. Light a fire in us, I I pray. The Holy Spirit came as fire. Come again, Holy Spirit. Stir the passions of our heart. We will not serve the King well if we love him little. Father, do that. May we stir one another to love and good works. May we be passionate about what we believe and declare it better. Then the biggest fan, talks of his team, the most affectionate spouse, speaks of his wife, the proudest dad, speaks of their child. Father, may we exceed those things as we speak of of our King Jesus. Father, may we know the truth. May we live the truth passionately. May we be your witnesses. Father, stir up in us gospel witness, the kind that changes our marriages and affects our homes and families, the kind that carries us across the street or down the hall or to the office next door, the person in the next class. Pray for the sort of passion that might send us on a short-term mission trip or a lifelong career. Father, make us bold again, make us strong again, make us confident again, because your Holy Spirit. We're your witnesses. We're the eyewitnesses. May we be good ones, authentic ones, accurate ones, passionate ones. Lord, for those who would repent and believe the gospel today, Father, I thank you that you will welcome them into your kingdom the rule and reign of Christ over their hearts and lives now, the ultimate rule and reign of Christ over everything one day in a world quite unlike this one. We long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.